If you stay with me for the reading of God's word, we read from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you without money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not food, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Carefully listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choices of my foods. Pay attention, and come to me. Listen, so that you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the promises assured to David. Since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples, so you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you. For the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his ways, and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, so that ye may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely sorry. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, thus declares the Lord. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven, and do not return there without saturating the earth, and making it germinate and sprout, and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word comes from sorry, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please, and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided to the mountains and the hills and will sorry and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands instead of a thorn bush a cypress will come up instead of a bitter or a briar a myrtle will come up and it will make the name for Yahweh an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed you guys may be seated. Thank you, Todd. We're going to be in John chapter 6 today, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We've got a long passage to cover today. Um, by the Lord's help and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we'll hopefully get through this today. Um, and uh, I know we will. We will definitely make it through. Uh, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Let me read, uh, read us the whole passage all the way to verse 59. Um, so follow along with me in your Bibles as best you can. Uh, let me read this passage for us. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum, the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten 
the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life and came, and came, that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true flesh, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to dive into this passage. Lord, even today as we come to the Lord's Supper, this passage shows us that you are the true bread, that you are the true drink. Lord, this this supper that we will partake of is is an arrow pointing to your sacrifice on the cross. Help us to not forget that as we walk through this passage. But Lord, help us to understand this passage correctly, to understand it rightly, and Lord, to reflect on the salvation that you bring us. In your name, amen. So why does Jesus speak in parables? Why does he talk in parables? As you may have, as you listen through this passage, you might have been confused a little bit by some of the things Jesus said. Might have seemed a little odd at some points. So why does Jesus speak in parables? Though this passage today is not strictly speaking a parable, Jesus teaches some odd things, which if we do not understand why Jesus would teach in such a way, we can miss the point of his teaching. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus' disciples asked him the very same question. Why do you speak in parables? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this. Let me turn there really quickly. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, Jesus answers them this way. He says, Then the disciples came and, and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? This is Jesus responding, and he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an, an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in the case of the prophecy of Isaiah, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, with their, and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their eyes, have, have been, uh, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their uh, ear, eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and, ter- in, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The purpose of Jesus' seemingly strange teaching, then, is to separate those who understand from those who do not. He speaks in these ways to make a separation between those who get it and those who don't get it. It is for this very reason that someone can read the Bible, even know what Jesus means by what he says, but can still completely miss the point. Without an understanding of the gospel, there is no way we could really understand and believe what Jesus is teaching. As we'll see in our passage today, the people that Jesus is is telling this to, talking about that he is the bread of life, they continue to not understand what he means by that. And at the end of the day, they will reject Jesus because they don't understand. They don't get it. It doesn't connect for them. So the the purpose of the parables is those who do understand, those who do believe, they'll get it. And they'll apply it. Those who don't understand and those who do not believe will still have a gap of distance between their understanding and the message being taught. Now, if we remember last week, we looked at Jesus's, the the miracle known as the feeding of the 5,000. 
This week we'll see why Jesus performed the miracle. But we must also be careful not to misunderstand his explanation and so miss the entire point. Jesus' explanation may seem a bit odd, but if you'll remember, we already know that there are people who appear that they want to follow Jesus. We already saw that last week. They look like they want to follow Jesus, but they don't really understand who Jesus is, nor do they understand the nature of the salvation that he is bringing to the world. Jesus' explanation then is meant to demonstrate to those people that they really do not understand and thereby separate those who truly believe from those who merely are following for the miracles or for some political ends to be met. Last week we saw how Jesus demonstrated great hospitality by feeding the 5,000. Today we will see that we will see that Jesus fed the 5,000 to show that he is the true bread of life. Why did Jesus do this miracle? Why did he feed them? Why did he feed these 5,000 people? To show them who he is. Not just to be a nice guy, not just to make sure they got fed, but he had a reason for it. He wanted to show them who he is. So let's begin here. Um, first of all, we see in, there's kind of a, this transition paragraph, which really could uh, deserve its own sermon. Uh, but in the context of the passage, it really functions primarily as a transition. There's a private miracle here that takes place for the disciples. We see this beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea, this is the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, where the Sea of Galilee was located, it was, where it was located, it had mountains surrounding it and it was below sea level. So there was all this wind would come in and there, there, even today at the Sea of Galilee, there are still massive storms that take place there that even with powered boats are difficult, make it difficult to cross the Sea of Galilee. How much more then with rowboats? Wooden rowboats would have been difficult for them to cross the sea. And here they are in the middle of the sea, and it's dark, and these guys are professional fishermen, but there's a major storm that takes place. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, and would imagine rightly so. There's a person walking on the water toward them. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This passage functions as a transition from the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 to the teaching about the miracle. It's included in the narrative for several reasons. We'll look at two. From it, we find out how Jesus and the disciples got from where they were to Capernaum. It kind of shows this is, this is how they got from where they were to the western side of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Um, further, we've already seen last week that Jesus per portrays himself as a better Moses. We saw that this bread idea was, and what we see even in this passage, the idea of manna gets brought up. So there's this whole idea throughout this entire chapter that Jesus is a better Moses. So also reflecting on that same theme, one of the interesting aspects that this particular part of the narrative brings out is it, is it, it brings up again that same theme of the Exodus narrative from the book of Exodus. Now what happens a couple of times while the Israelites are leaving Egypt? They cross some waters, don't they? 
They cross the Red Sea and God brings them safely across the Red Sea. They cross the Jordan River. God brings them safely across the Jordan River. Here we have again a body of water being crossed, bringing up the same themes that we would see in the book of Exodus and in the, in the whole next Exodus narrative. So further showing that Jesus is portrayed as a better Moses. This uh, ties to the Exodus from Egypt. Um, uh, and uh, we'll see even more connections. We also see in here, we see Jesus demonstrating uh, his control over nature. Now, this makes perfect sense, right? Jesus is the creator of nature. How does he, he obviously has control over nature. He can tell the water, don't make me sink when I walk on you, right? In other passages, we see where Jesus calms storms. Just out of the middle of nowhere, just calms the storms. This is actually a theme because he is creator, because God is creator. Over and over in the Old Testament, there are passage after passage about how God tells the sea where it belongs. He sets, it, sets its boundaries. He is control over the, has control over the seas. And here again, we see Jesus has this, de he demonstrates his control, his direct control over nature itself, proving that he is God. We also notice that Jesus is not so much interested in why the disciples are afraid, but he is much more interested in alleviating their fear. We see that they're frightened, and he says, it's I, do not be afraid. He doesn't stop to ask them, why are you afraid? Let's, let's dissect your fears here. He says, I'm here, it's just me, don't be afraid. Right, so here Jesus shows his provision for them in, in, in stopping them from being afraid and in helping alleviate their fear. So we know one certain miracle that Jesus performs for his disciples here is that he walks on water, which is a miracle in and of itself. But also we see what might be a second miracle. Look at this. And it says they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now it could be that they were already close to the land, but if, you, if we take this at face value, it says immediately, as soon as Jesus got on the boat, they were, at, they were at the land and safe. It's very possible that there was a second miracle here that takes place. Now again, these miracles were, to, were for the disciples. These are what the disciples got to see. They got to see these, these miracles. Um, so they were kind of private miracles. But in our, in our narrative itself, it, this, this section functions as a transition. Now, as we, as we move into the, the next section where Jesus starts talking about how he is the bread of life, we're going to see several aspects of salvation. We'll see four major aspects of salvation uh, that will help us understand the salvation that does come from the bread of life. First of all, we'll see that, the salvation, that our, the salvation that we receive from the bread of life cannot be earned. It cannot be earned by us. We can't buy it. We can't do something to get it. Te this uh, teaching, as we see in verse 59, it takes place in the synagogue. So Jesus has, uh, he is, he's at dry land. They're in Capernaum now. And here they are, they're, they're in the synagogue. And, and this, this uh, kind of discussion ends up coming forward here. Uh, we see in the beginning of this passage, and starting in verse 22, how the people noticed that Jesus was gone. And what do they do? They follow. And they come to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And here they find him at the synagogue, as we'll see in verse 59. 
And in the synagogues, it was common for these types of debates to take place. They may have been reading some of the very scriptures to which Jesus is referring to. Maybe they read Isaiah 55 that morning. Uh, maybe they read some of the passages, uh, the passage in, uh, in Exodus about, about the manna being provided. Maybe it was, it was these readings that, that, that brought forward this discussion. We don't know for sure what was exactly going on, why this conversation took place. Yet here we have this beginning of this conversation. The crowds that Jesus had fed, uh, the 5,000, remember we, at the end we saw these people wanted to make Jesus their king, and Jesus just leaves. He gets out of the way and, and, and goes away. These people follow Jesus to kind of ask him and kind of find out more from him. Look at down to verse 25 now. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Okay, anyway, it's kind of a, they're, they're trying to start a conversation with Jesus here. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. Remember how we've seen before, we've seen this a couple of times. Jesus is not fooled by false belief. He can peer right into our hearts and he knows exactly what our motives are. He knows why you're here at church today. For some of us, that may be a good thing. Some of us, maybe not a good thing. He knows why we do what we do. He knows why we make the decisions we make. He knows exactly what our motives are. Here, we see him again doing the same thing. Truly, truly, I say unto you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're coming to me not, not even because of the miracle which we've seen him rebuke people for that before too. Since the miracle isn't even what brought you here. You guys got your stomach filled and now you want more. He sees and notices in them the absolute selfish nature of their so-called worship. Right? Even calling him teacher. He says, what are you, what are you talking about? All you want is more food. He notices the, the, the deception there right away. Truly, truly, I say unto you, this is going to come up over and again in the passage. This phrase when it says truly, truly, this is an emphatic statement. So when you see truly, truly, I say unto you, or your translation may say verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen, amen, I say unto you. This is a, it's an emphatic statement. It's kind of like if I was preaching and I said, listen up. It worked, didn't it? Right? This is what Jesus is doing. This verily, verily, when we see that in the scriptures, our minds ought to perk up because the minds of his listeners were also being perked up. Hey guys, listen, I got an important point to make. Right? Verily, verily, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He sees their suspect motives, and he says, don't look for temporary food. Look for eternal food. Now, again, this is where the metaphor starts to form here. And we'll see how they respond to this metaphor later on. But for the food that you, which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, that is the Son of Man, that is Jesus, for on him God the Father has set his seal. God the Father has set his seal. D.A. Carson explains the ideal, the idea is that God the Father has certified the Son as his own agent. We saw this earlier in chapter 5, authorizing him to be the one who alone can bestow this food. 
So God the Father has given it to God the Son, the Son of Man, to, to be able to distribute this, this food, this eternal food. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And here we see the motives continu continue to be off, off scale, right? Jesus is saying, come to me for eternal food. And they say, okay, what do we got to do for it? Right? Essentially what they say is, tell us what works God requires and we'll do it. Now, they display no doubt. This is what's interesting about this. They display no doubt of their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge God may have set for them. Right? They say, yeah, I can do that. What does God want me to do? I can do it. Yeah, I can do that right? They show no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift within the purview of the Son of Man. It doesn't click. We already see it's not clicking for them. What can I do? How can I get it? How can I get that salvation? What can I do to get that for myself? When the truth is, nothing. There's nothing you can do to earn that. Absolutely nothing. Continuing on, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. What you have to do, believe in the one he sent. There's not any number of things that you can do. There's not a checklist that you can do and eventually, and be able to earn your salvation. Believe in the one that the Father has sent. That's how you receive this bread. That's how you receive this food. Verse 30. So they said to him, this is where it gets really interesting, where it's, it, they continue to show their lack of true faith. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What sign? <laughs> Didn't I just feed 20,000 people with five pieces of bread and two fish? And now you want another sign? Really? What sign do you do, Jesus? What are you going to do? Prove it. Prove that I should follow you. I mean, don't we do the same thing? You know, Jesus, if you'll just do this, I'll believe in you. Or, God, I'll trust you if you take care of this for me. Right? So before we get too critical of these guys and their cynicism, how many times do we do the same thing? You know, Lord, I'll, 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 I'll go to church every day if you just pay my bills for me. Or if you just fill in the blank. Then I'll follow you. And how often do we do that? And then here we have these people doing the exact same thing. Jesus, what, what are you going to do for us? Prove it. Now, again, we'll see exactly kind of what they probably were, were thinking that, that he should do for them. Um, he says, uh, our fathers, uh, verse 31, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So maybe perhaps they were saying, you know, if you're really the prophet like Moses, Moses brought down man from heaven. Let's see you do that and then we'll trust you, right? Jesus, I want you to perform another miracle right now where you make bread rain down from heaven. That's what you should do, right? And Jesus says, uh, for one, um, it wasn't Moses who provided the bread at all. That was God not Moses, right? So you're trusting Moses for all this stuff. He didn't do a thing. God did it, not him, right? And further, what does he say? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
You want the true bread from heaven? You've got to look to God for it. You've got to look to the Father. And who do, what bread does he send? Me, right? Not me, Jesus saying me, right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, just like the woman at the well said, sir, give us this bread always. Now again, they're still stuck on the literal sense. They're still stuck thinking, oh, we want that food? Yeah, food that I can eat and like never get hungry again? Absolutely, just like the woman at the well. Yeah, I want that water. The water that's gonna make me never thirsty again? I don't wanna come to this nasty well anymore. I wanna have water all the time. Here they have the exact same thing. They're stuck on the literal and they completely miss the point. Jesus does not respond to them by going in on with their request, right? If he had done that, if he had, imagine if Jesus said, if they had said, you know, Jesus, prove, prove it to us, do this miracle. And he says, okay, I'll do that and rain it down. Now what has Jesus just done? Jesus has just said, you know what? You guys get to determine what I do and how I, how I act and how I perform miracles. And then Jesus becomes nothing more than a puppet of the people. So Jesus, in asserting his deity, he says, no, I'm not going to give you what you want. I've already proven to you time and again that I'm the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. I don't have to follow your rules. I'm gonna, you need to come to me as the Messiah and, call, and treat me as God, not as your puppet. Right? And here they, they, we see that they continually uh, uh, misunderstand. They have the same misunderstanding of the woman at the well. They are still thinking of physical bread, not the spiritual meaning that Jesus intended. So we see that the spread of life cannot be earned. We cannot earn our salvation. There are no works. There is nothing that we can do to gain God's favor. Coming to church enough is not going to get you salvation. Taking this bread and this grape juice is not going to earn you salvation. Getting baptized is not going to earn you salvation. Helping people cross the street is not going to earn you salvation. There is no checklist that you can do that can earn your salvation. Glory, hallelujah, because I would never be able to fill that checklist. And you couldn't either. Our salvation is not dependent on things that we do. It is rather dependent on the one whom God the Father has sent, that is Jesus Christ. That's who our salvation is dependent on. The second thing we see about our salvation is salvation from the bread of life is secure. It is a secure salvation. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This, this language here is, is brilliant. There's the, um, over again in this particular passage, Jesus used, or the, the, the text, the scriptures use a double negative. Now, in our world, double negative usually means, like, it's, if it's not not something, that means it's the opposite, right? You kind of try to flip it around. In, in, uh, in Greek, in Greek language, having a double negative is very much like saying, truly, truly, I say to you. It's emphatic. It means really, really no. Definitely no. This would be like if I said, we never, 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 never do this, Right? This is what this is, this is kind of what this is doing. It's this double, you don't have to count how many nevers I have in order to find out if I was positive or negative on that one, right? You don't need to do that, right? It's just, you just know that it's just an emphatic never. So in the same way it is with Greek, it's, it's a double negative means never. So it says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, it literally says, shall not, not hunger, shall never hunger. 
And whoever believes in me shall not, not thirst ever. How emphatic. You definitely, definitely, definitely will never thirst again. What a wonderful salvation that is. Never, ever hunger. And you'll never, ever, ever thirst again. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all the Father has given me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This passage, this particular verse is sometimes misunderstood to mean that everybody who comes to Jesus, no matter who it is, that Jesus is going to accept everybody. Now again, there are other passages that that indicate more of uh, of an idea of a a more general salvation, a more general uh, atonement that all who come to Christ, all who believe are the ones who are saved. Those who believe in Jesus are those who are saved. This particular passage is not talking about the reception of salvation, though. Let me break this down. Let me tell you what I mean. I just want to make sure we don't misuse this particular passage. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Talking about the group. Everyone that the Father gives to me comes to me. So that the salvation part's already done. Those who the Father has given me, they come to me. That means they believe in him. That that salvation part is already done. And then he gets particular. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, those who are already Christians, those who are believers, I will never, never kick them out. We have a secure salvation. Jesus is not talking about accepting you to be a believer. He's saying, he's talking about preserving you as a believer. And he furthers that point. He furthers that point and pushes that forward. Keep looking at this. It says, for I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He will lose nothing of those he has given, he has been given. If you are truly a believer today, you are secure in your salvation. Amen. He will never cast you out. He will not lose those who he has been given. What a wonderful truth. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. One thing I want to point out in this passage before we move forward, if you look at, again at verse 35. This is going to, verse 35, if you keep, keep that in your mind. When we get down to this last paragraph, verse 35 is going to help us understand what's meant by that. Look at this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to Jesus, whoever comes to Jesus by faith will not hunger. All right? So later on in the passage, when it talks about eating my flesh, what is he talking about? Coming to him by faith. When he talks about whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he's already determined what does it mean to be gaining, to be having your thirst satisfied. It is to believe in him. So later, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he's already determined the meaning of that metaphor. That's going to come into play. Keep that in the back of your mind, and we'll see how that plays out here in the last passage. So we've seen, first of all, that our salvation cannot be earned. Second, we see that our salvation is secure. Third, we'll see our, we see that our salvation from the bread of life is eternal. Look at verses 41 and 42. The Jews grumbled about him. Remember, they're in the synagogue. So this is probably not the crowds. This is probably other people, not the people who saw the miracle. This might be other people that were in the congregation that day. They started grumbling about among themselves because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus has said a lot since then, right? 
He's, we're a couple of verses later, and they're still stuck on this point that he, he said he came down from heaven. What's, what does he mean by that? Right? They're kind of stuck there. He said, uh, they're grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know this guy. What, who does he think he is, saying that he came down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Salvation comes only when the Father draws that person. In other places of Scripture, we find that the Father does this drawing to salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. Continuing on here, uh, verse, uh, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, which again is a repetition of John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, he has seen him, and he has made him known. Continuing on then, uh, verse 47, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, so again, grab your attention again. Here's the main point. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever believes his eternal life, Jesus is the bread of life that is unlike the manna. Jesus says the manna that your fathers ate that you're so worried about, People ate that, and what did they do? They died. The bread that I'm offering you brings eternal life. Eternal life. <clears throat> this is not the result, this, this idea about eternal life. It's not some, some result of a fear of mortality that, oh, we don't want to die, so we want to have that eternal life. This is not what it's talking about, but rather it's a promise of life forever with God. It's a promise of life forever with God. Our salvation is eternal. The fact that it is eternal is supported by the earlier statement that it is secure. If our salvation is secure, it is eternal, and vice versa. If our salvation is eternal, it is secure. Right? These two ideas go hand in hand. This salvation does not have an end. After the final resurrection and the recreation of the new heaven and earth, those who are truly believers will spend eternity with God. What a mind-boggling concept. Our own lives on this side of heaven are but a blip on the radar of eternity. And yet we are promised. We can't even fathom that. Can you, can you imagine living forever with God? The oldest person in this room hasn't begun to experience the amount of life that they will have with God forever. I'm just, I'm 31 years old right now. 31 years is not even close to eternity. I mean, think about that. Forever. We can't, we can't even calculate the amount of time that is because that would be ridiculous. Right? Even if we said, well, 3,000 years. Okay. And then what? Keep going. 
right? Well, 10,000. Keep going. One million years. Keep going. Eternity. Guys, this is an amazing promise about our salvation. Our salvation is eternal. And finally, we see in this passage, salvation from the bread of life, it can be misunderstood and it can be rejected. This salvation can be misunderstood and it can be rejected. Jesus' discourse becomes very metaphorical at this point. Becomes very metaphorical, which led many to misunderstand. Many will want to listen to this paragraph in this passage um, and, 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 and listen to how this, and maybe relate this to the very ordinance we're going to have today um, in just a moment. And they'll want, to, they'll want to connect those two. Now, there's a good reason to draw this conclusion. The language of bread and the language of eating the flesh and, drink of the, and drinking the blood of Jesus are very reminiscent of him establishing the ordinance. There are, however, a couple of important differences. First, Jesus has already directed the meaning of the metaphor in verse 35. If we go back into verse 35, we saw this. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. So then in the bottom here, so, uh, we'll go, starting in verse 52, let's get to this point. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So what does that mean? To come to him by faith and to believe in him. Not eat his skin, not drink the red stuff pumping in his body. Not that. He's talking in metaphor now, right? But, but oftentimes we, uh, uh, some scholars, some Bible readers will take these and say, oh, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, okay? Now, we can already see it's not talking about the Lord's Supper. Not really. Not, not at its primary level, right? Um, There's some very similar language. But secondly, we see in, in verse 35, um, it's, it, uh, or excuse me, sorry. Second, the word typically used for the Lord's Supper is body rather than flesh. Here Jesus says, eat my flesh. Now, in other passages having to do with the Lord's Supper, it says, this is my body. Not my flesh. Two different Greek words. It's, it's uh, flesh in this passage is the Greek word sarx. In uh, other passages where it talks about the Lord's Supper, it uses the word soma or body. Right? So this is a different, different word completely. So it's not, it can't be talking, or it, it is very likely not talking about that at the primary level. Thus, any meaning that may apply to the Lord's Supper is certainly secondary rather than primary. Some will take the application of the Lord's Supper as primary and deduce that taking the Lord's Supper somehow gives salvation. That, my friends, is the Roman Catholic view. Because they believe. They believe that if you eat that cracker and you drink that juice, that somehow you're earning some sort of salvation. That you're getting something from it. That somehow you're earning Jesus points. I don't know. Right? And they, they also... Uh, they, they also believe in a doctrine called transubstantiation in which they believe that, that in some mysterious way, the bread and the juice become the body and blood of Christ. Because Jesus said you have to eat his flesh. So how does that become his, that has to become his flesh in order to be giving salvation. That has to become his blood. Right? So they have a theology that's built on this uh, called transubstantiation where the elements become the body and blood of Christ. Now let me be clear. We do not believe that. If you believe that, do not take part in our, in our supper at the end of the service. Don't take part. I don't want you to eat this in an incorrect way. I don't want you to take part in this in a way that dishonors the Lord. Don't take it. It's safer for you not to take it. 
The elements are grape juice and chalky bread, I promise. That's all they are. Taking these elements will not perform some magical act upon you whereby you are now saved until the next time you eat a cracker. In this particular passage, if there's any relation to the Lord's Supper, it's only in pointing to the object of the supper itself, that is, the salvation provided through the death of Christ. Other misunderstandings could come from this passage. In fact, there were some, uh, a lot of non-believers in the first couple centuries of Christianity, they heard about this meal, they heard about this, this, this supper itself, and they misunderstood, they thought that this meant that Christians were eating something gross, right? They actually, the Christians had a tendency to actually take in, uh, uh, take in babies that had been abandoned on the streets, right? So there was this misunderstanding that they were taking these babies and baking them in a loaf of bread and eating that. That's what outsiders believed was going on because they're talking about eating the flesh and blood of Christ. And well, how do they do that? Well, that, that might be what they're doing. Now, well, no wonder they were so grossed out and weirded out by Christianity. They didn't get it. They didn't understand now, again, I know that one's really gross and kind of weird to hear somebody say that from the pulpit. There are much more disgusting things that other groups that were deviant Christian groups were actually doing in fulfillment of the, to try to obey these passages that I can't even mention from here. I won't. It's horrifying, right? It'll make you, yeah, it will not be clean in here if we mention that stuff. So I promise you, we can misunderstand what Jesus means. And again, this particular passage, he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and that's how we receive life. No wonder in verse 60, in verse 66, we see people walking away. They don't get it, and then some people just walk away. They don't understand what's really going on here. They misunderstand and therefore reject Christ. In our own culture, we have a similar concern uh, that the crowds had. We, we have a hard time understanding that salvation can come without, working, without me working for it. That the idea that salvation would include the concept of the Trinity, nonetheless, the idea that a per, one or the persons of the Trinity would take on humanity, live sinlessly and selflessly for the purpose of dying on a cross and raising from the dead, it confounds our minds sometimes. And the most intellectually gifted people in the world are dumbfounded by this. Resurrection itself, to some, seems impossible to fathom. Some have tried to reinterpret the scriptures as mere stories, reinterpret the resurrection as some kind of existential experience of being raised from the dead from within. These attempts have tried to make Christianity more accessible to the more evolved Westerners. Such attempts have only served to distort the gospel, making it a gospel that cannot save anyone. So we see that our salvation is, cannot be earned. We saw that our salvation can, uh, is, is totally secure, that it's eternal. But we also saw that the salvation that's provided, it can lead to misunderstanding and rejection. It can lead to misunderstanding and rejection, which is why it's so important to understand what Jesus is saying and to understand the gospel. Let me encourage you today, if you are not a Christian, and you want to know more about becoming a Christian, if you want to know how you can not be misunderstanding this, I'd love to share with you and talk with you. Grab me after the service. Grab me at the, during the invitation. I'd love to share with you how you can know more about salvation, how to, be, how to become a Christian. Uh, maybe you are, are seeking a church home and you want to uh, become a member of our church. This is a place where we're going to share the gospel. We're going to clarify what Scripture talks about. We're going we're to teach the even hard things that Jesus teaches. 
and we're going to clear, clarify the gospel. We're going to we're going to seek to not misunderstand that that the word of God. Maybe you're here as a Christian. You just want to rejoice and thank God for the salvation that you have. Use this time of invitation as the Lord would lead you, and then we'll we'll, we'll move into the Lord's Supper.